This is a Fuente podcast. Hey guys, welcome back. I'm gonna be moving quick today because I got a lot of stuff going on today. The I got people watching my baby. They probably won't be here much longer. So I got go 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 go. So we're gonna go. This is the last part. Um, might be a couple of bits, but we're gonna be going over the Greco-Roman view of the world since we've already done the Jewish one to death over like seven episodes or something. So here we go, the Greco-Roman world. I want you to think of uh, beautiful marble statues in your head, pillars stretching up into the sky, you know, the, the power and the might of, of Rome and the, the philosophical power of Greece together. Absolutely fascinating time in history and culture. Um, we're going to look at it. The Greeks. What are they wanting? They, they want to pierce the veil and look into the unknown. They want to have bright eyes, like the bright eyes of Athena. And there's these owls that flew over Athens, and they had wide eyes that could see in the dark. And you can see this little owl. It's found throughout Athens, and it enjoys nesting in the buildings there. It nests in the rafters of the Parthenon and the Temple of Athene. A philosopher was supposed to be like Athena, like these owls with big eyes that could see into the darkness. See truth where others only saw obscurity. To get to the truth, they ask questions like, what is there? What should we do? And how do we know things? Now, these three questions here are the questions for these three different schools of thought that they would have divided into physics, ethics, and logic. Physics is what is there. Ethics is what should we do. And logic is how do we know things? We've all struggled with these same questions in our classes in our schools, trying to figure out what is there, what should we do, and how do we do things. It's probably not as much of an emphasis on what should we do as there needs to be. Um, and there's not really much on how do we know things. Like growing up in school, we didn't learn a lot about epistemology. Um, in our materialist culture, we really just kind of focus on what is there. But these other two questions are great. Um, so kudos to the Greeks for looking into them. Physics was broader than our idea of physics for the Greeks. Physics would look at all that was, including not just matter, but gods and goddesses, uh, maybe even abstract concepts. Ethics concerned with what is concerned with what we should do, and that's pretty straightforward. Logic was how we know things. It was about making sure that one was moving securely from one point to another and not being merely carried along by rhetoric, emotion, or faulty reasoning. Paul was probably familiar with Greek philosophy. Why? Well, he was from Tarsus. From 88 to 86 BC, Mithridates VI, king of Pontus, was rebelling against Rome and Athens joined him. In the battle that ensued, Athens was sieged and destroyed by the Romans, sending philosophers running in all directions. Some went to Rome, some to Rhodes, some to Alexandria in North Africa, and some to Tarsus in Cilicia. The geographer Strabo tells us that the philosophical reputation of Tarsus was intense. It was robust. Strabo himself was a Stoic philosopher who wrote during the times of Augustus and Tiberius from 30 BC to 20 AD. So that's a long time he was writing. He must have been eating his vegetables. This would have been during Paul's adolescence when he was uh, coming of age that 
Strabo's writing. Strabo describes the schools of Tarsus as superior to those in Athens and those in Alexandria. Strabo even lets us know that Rome of his day was full of philosophers from Tarsus. So Paul grew up surrounded by uh, the world's best philosophers. What's interesting is that Christianity would have looked more like a philosophy, in quotes, to the outside world than a religio. A religio, would they're like actions that you would take to appease the gods. A philosophy was more understanding what's the problem and how do we fix it much deeper than just this um action that you would do a religio goes to what you believe um so christianity would have looked more like a philosophy if you asked someone back then what it was right even comments not for nothing are the early icons of Paul more like a uh, more than a little like the ancient statues of Socrates. End quote. That's from page two hundred four. Religion did not mean the first century world what it means to us. Okay. What was religion to an ancient Greek? It was more a set of actions you did than any particular thought pattern or worldview. Religion was a series of festivals and sacrifices you made to and for the gods. The gods did not interact with morals or ethical laws. Okay, so they were just separate things. And in fact, religion didn't even start to take on its modern meaning until the 6th century. Around the time of Pope Gregory I, um, religion started being used to was starting to be used to describe the actions of monks. And that's from Tom Holland's book, Dominion. We're going to be doing probably a series on that after this. Um, Tom Holland, in Dominion, he quotes Theognis Homagareus. Oh, sorry. Theog Theognis Homagareus. That's how you would do it. The Greek accents are always in random spots. Are there guidelines set by heaven for mortal men? No path to follow that will please the gods? This question, which the sick, the bereaved, or the oppressed could hardly help but ask, had no ready answer. The gods, inscrutable and whimsical as they were, rarely deigned to explain themselves. They certainly never thought to regulate morals. Okay, that's a quote from Tom Holland saying, The gods really were detached from morality. The gods were whimsical and unpredictable. You never knew if they were pleased with you, and they could become enraged with you at any moment. In defining religion in this context, Wright states religion involved, quote, temples and sacrifices, auspices and oracles, a priesthood which overlapped considerably with local aristocracy, a close integration of the life of the polis. It assumed the existence and the moody unpredictability of the traditional pantheon of deities, and particularly of the local and tribal deity particular to the city or region. It might include particular cults, mysteries into which one might be initiated, thereby gaining a new secret religious status in the present and promise and the promise of a blissful post-mortem existence. Such religion, in quotes, both at the pri public and private level, was usually capable of accommodating other di divinities. As groups and individuals migrated around the ancient Near East, this resulted in complex, crisscrossing varieties of local religions in any one place in which, for instance, newly arrived gods and goddesses might take the names and attributes of existing local ones. So that's where you'll see, like, um, 
Ishtar and, and Aphrodite being linked up in these places. Like, the different gods would be mixed around with wherever they are if they had similar characteristics. Um, it was not just that the gods were arbitrary and capricious. They would also wipe out whole cities and allow another god to wipe out a city if they lo- uh, that they loved if the second god allowed them to wipe out one of their cities. Uh, you can actually see this in the Iliad. Um, also, there's stories of rape everywhere with like Apollo and Zeus. So, for example, Hera requested that Zeus give up Troy um, in the Iliad. And it's a city that she loved. Oh, sorry, that he loved. Zeus refuses. And uh, we, we read in the Iliad her attempt to kind of like wheel and deal with him. Okay, I'm going to quote from it. The three cities that I love best of all are Argos, uh, Sparta, and Mycenae, with streets as broad as Troy's. Raise them whenever they stir the hatred in your heart. Uh, so what you see here is Hera was telling Zeus, go ahead, blow up these cities I love. Just, just let me blow up Troy. That's what she was saying. Even the cities I love most, you can blow them up if you'll just let me blow up Troy. What mattered was victory, not the cost. Hera wanted Troy destroyed, even if it meant the destruction of her cities. And concerning rape, Holland writes, quote, Apollo, most golden of the gods, who in time would come to be identified with the charioteer of the sun, dazzled those he raped. That's from Dominion, page 15. And later he says, Increasingly, though Zeus had chosen to disguise himself and descend from his palace, not to share in feast, but to rape, whether it's a shower of gold or a white bull or a swan with beating wings, he had forced himself on a whole succession of women, thereby bred a race of heroes. If you've been listening to my podcast from the beginning, you can't help but think of the Nephilim here, half-god, man, heroes of old. Only the Bible does not provide a positive depiction of their Mesopotamian mythical oppressors. But there is something interesting you can note here if we pause. We think of our Me Too culture today, and it's just taken for granted that if you expose someone in power who's exercised their power in a way to gratify themselves sexually, in a way that demeans someone else and has no consent, we all presuppose that that's totally evil. Where did this presupposition come from? You can tell the more you study the ancient classical world, it certainly didn't come from there. In the ancient Roman world, and we'll get into it more in my next series, If you were a free Roman male, you could have your way with anyone. There wasn't a concept of human rights like we would have today. There wasn't this theme of the weak need to be taken care of, and if you oppress the weak, you're a terrible person. Um, The weak are scorned in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Strength is what's worshipped. Okay, now we talked a little bit about um, physics, ethics, and logic. Um, let's look more at logic. These are the three parts of philosophy, by the way. But now we're going to look at logic. The word logic is the word logos. And it meant all sorts of things. It's the word for word and reason, amongst other things. It meant everything about how you think, how you do dialectic, how you organize your thoughts. Wright states, quote, Logic was all about making sure that one was moving securely from one point to another, not being merely carried along by rhetoric, emotion, or faulty reasoning. 
Paul's religion, Christianity, was much more like a school of philosophy, as I mentioned earlier. It had ethics. It talked about how the world got here. It claimed to have an answer to what our purpose was in the world. And the schools of philosophy actually had canonized texts like the early Christians had. The early Christians used the Septuagint. Important to note are the Aristotle and Plato are about 300 years before Paul. Wright notes, quote, Nicolaus of Damascus, friend and advisor to Herod the Great, as well as friend and biographer to Augustus, as well as tutor of the children of Anthony and Cleopatra, wrote paraphrases of and commentaries on Aristotle's work. Plato, too, enjoyed a considerable revival at the same time, following the refounding of the Academy after the Roman destruction of Athens in 88 BC. One of the most notable exponents of Platonism in, uh, in or shortly after the time of Paul was the philosopher and biographer Plutarch, who for many years combined remarkable literary activity with holding the office of priest at the important shrine of Apollo in Delphi. And so you could look to Plutarch, and he gets his answer to life's big questions, not from some book that's associated with the priesthood of Delphi. He gets his answers to life's deepest questions from the writings of Plato. The world of Greek philosophy, says Wright, can be depicted much like a deck of cards. Quote, the four suits then stand for the four main philosophical schools of Paul's day. The Academy. The Academy is a development of Plato's Academy, but with some fresh emphases. Then the Lyceum, a development of Aristotle's Peripatetic School. <laughs> Peripatetic means like walking around. Um, the Stoics and the Epicureans. If we stretch the metaphor a little, we might suggest that the Cynics were the jokers in the pack, which is happily true in that if one wants to smile out of ancient philosophy, it is to the Cynics that one must first turn. And I skip ahead a little bit. One can imagine a group of people in the corner of the room refusing to have anything to do with the game, declaring that one cannot be sure what the suits actually are, or whether or not aces are to be high or low. These would be the skeptics. End quote. Wright states that a normal person on the street would probably be exposed to a mix of various cards from different schools rather than a systematized exhibition of each one. You can make an analogy today with people on the internet making modernist and postmodernist arguments without ever realizing what they're doing. You'll see atheists online using logical positivism. You'll see New Agers using an emphasis on subjective feelings. And these people are pulling from, like the New Agers are pulling from uh, a lot of philosophy developed in the 1800s that don't even realize it. You know, it's not like they've sat and read... Uh, Helena, I uh, can't remember her name. She's got like a Eastern European sounding last name. Big influence on Hitler. Uh, she was kind of a big start to the New Age. Or Huxley and Hume, you know, could be heavily influencing some internet YouTube atheist who doesn't even know who Huxley and Hume are, potentially. Um, or like Christians where you have like the fundamentalists who are incredibly moved by like... Um, Charles Grandison Finney. It's like I, I, you know, grew up in a lot of fundamentalist context and I never even heard that name. Um, the Academy, we'll start there, would hold Plato's ideas. So those are the ones I'm most familiar with. I love reading Plato. I actually have his Republic right over here on my bed. Plato is where we hear about Socrates, 
who is called by many the father of Western philosophy. Some quick notes on Socrates. He gave us the Socratic method, which means rather than learning just by what you're told, you question divine truth. Very influential in my life. He also has the famous quote of, quote, the unexamined life is not worth living. And he believed the highest purpose of man was to seek out and execute moral goodness. Socrates was accused of corrupting the youth of Athens by his teachings and was sentenced to death by drinking a poison called hemlock. There's an interesting theme in Plato's writings that when Socrates was on trial, says Socrates, it wasn't really him on trial, but the people of Athens. It's really a reversal. Would they condemn an innocent man? So by condemning an innocent man, they proved themselves guilty. This theme was not missed by early Christian philosophers, and Justin Martyr even claimed Socrates had an imperfect perception of Christ, but fully believed him a type of proto-Christian. Here, I'm going to uh, quote right to sum up Plato's teachings. Plato taught that the world of space, time, and matter was essentially a secondary thing, a world of illusion by comparison with the ultimate reality, the world of forms or ideas. The invisible realities of which this uh, worldly things, whether trees and chairs or instances of good behavior, were mere space-time copies. True knowledge was therefore knowledge of the forms, uh, what appeared to be knowledge in relation to the world of space, time, and matter was in fact simply opinion or belief. This knowledge was to be the main goal and occupation, not of the outward bodily sense, but of the soul, which Plato believed was immortal, coming into a human body and passing from it either to a final state of disembodied bliss or into a sequence of other bodies through reincarnation. That's from Wright 209. One can easily see two developments out of this. You could even make an argument that because you need to seek out forms and knowledge and things of the spirit rather than the physical, you should live a life of spirituality and mystical contemplation. And this is what the second century Neoplatonists believed. You could also see the development of the idea that we can't really know anything since the only true reality is forms and therefore we should be skeptical, leading to the skeptics. So both of these strands were alive in Paul's day. On the next list is Aristotle with the Lyceum, originally called the Peripatetic. They were called this because they walked around when they were thinking and having conversations. I think I'm also a peripa uh, Peripatetic in that way. Uh, peripateo means to walk. Peri is the preposition around. So peri, oh yeah, pateo is to walk. So just think like a foot doctor. This is etymologically related. Um, Aristotle, uh, pata in Spanish. Okay, oh, anyway. Uh, Aristotle was Plato's disciple. Okay, so there's a strong connection between the peripatetic school and the academy. Aristotle was Plato's disciple who in turn was the tutor of the famous Greek Alexander the Great. He was also the tutor of Demetrius of Athens. Um, the first one, not the nephew. It was reported that Aristotle used to say he thanked fortune for three things. First, that I am a human and not a beast. Second, that I'm a man and not a woman. And third, that I'm a Greek and not a barbarian. Holland notes, quote, this anecdote so widely reported that it was told of several philosophers was certainly nothing with which Aristotle disagreed. 
Satisfied as he was that humans were superior to all the other 494 species he identified over the course of his researches, that man was the master of woman and that the barbarians were fitted by nature to be the slaves of the Greeks, he drew the logical, indeed the only possible, conclusion. Quote from Aristotle Politics. That one should command and another obey is not just necessary, but expedient. That's another one of his quotes. Much in line with Thucydides, who said, The strong do what they have the power to do, and the weak must suck it up. End quote. Wright notes, quote, Where Plato seems to us certainly to be pushing toward greater and greater abstraction, Aristotle usually appears to be moving in the opposite direction, towards greater and greater fine-tuned distinction between different objects, different animals, different motivations, and different beliefs. So what a shock then to see that someone who emphasizes distinctions would be saying racist things. Of course, back then, though, being racist and classist and all these other modern conceptions of morality that are actually stolen from Christianity, that's a little, um, a little plot, a little spoiler. We'll learn about that next time. Of course, he would make all these distinctions and then you know, categorize them in, in, into what him seemed an ordered fashion that fit with nature. This is what he does. Continuing with N.T. Wright's quote, he collects, analyzes, and categorizes, probing with sharp and questing intelligence areas as diverse as biology and aesthetics, music and metaphysics, showing, if not exceeding. Plato's concern with abstraction. He is particularly famous for his development of logic, notably the syllogism. Quote, this is N.T. Wright now quoting Aristotle. All sheep are animals. All animals feed and die. Therefore, all sheep feed and die. Which, and then continue with N.T. Wright, which he developed in order to move securely and on strict rational principles from truths already established to conclusions otherwise unreachable. His work on ethics constitutes a major development. The lasting influence of the idea of virtue, combining psychological insight with the development of character, with moral reflection on the attributes which go to make up a fully flourishing and, in that sense, happy human being. This pointed Aristotle forward to his work on politics, in which he developed a kind of corporate version of his ethics, drawing on his own experience in and knowledge of Macedon as well as Athens. At the other end of the scale, so to speak, his developed metaphysical reflections reached all the way up to an account of one single divinity, the unmoved mover of all, a view of the divine which became particularly influential in the Middle Ages through its development by Thomas Aquinas. Aristotle did not believe in Plato's forms and believed that he believed that concrete manifestations around us were the true reality. Oh, by the way, that after Thomas Aquinas is where I ended that last quote. Sorry, I'm being bad about that. You can imagine Aristotle looking at a blueberry and categorizing it as as that. It's a blueberry. You know, and then looking at its properties. Plato would look at it and he would see the color blue as an abstraction. And then he would see the spherical shape, a sphere, as an abstraction. He would think that those abstractions are the true reality. Aristotle would see the real object and... Uh, with our minds coming up with the concept of blueberry, like blue and and spheres, just to describe the real blueberry, and then Plato would think that the blueberry is just a copy of 
those categories we have in our mind. Um, so that's just a way to differentiate Plato and Aristotle. Now on the Epicureans, they're analogous to modern day deists. Okay, where they believe that there's a god, but it's a distant god that doesn't really get involved. Their school's campus was called the Garden. It was started by Epicurus. Um, it's pretty familiar to us in Western society. is more or less assumed by all of us in a lot of ways, especially you know since the Enlightenment. The Epicureans had kind of a metaphysical dualism, where the gods were distant, detached. They're not worried about the world. And um, humans should imitate this and achieve a happy, peaceful state. They believed in atomism, that everything was at its core purely material, and that upon our death we would dissolve without remainder. Pleasure was good, pain was bad, but this utilitarianism wasn't like a mindless hedonism, as Epicureans were out for the long-term happiness. And this comes that whenever you have like restraint in some ways, you don't just go out and shoot up a bunch of heroin and, and cocaine. You know, you got to take it easy so you can have the long-term happiness. The state of mind sought for by Epicurus was aparaxia, aparaxia. That's what it was called, aparaxia, a long-term peaceful state of mind. So think less of like a frat boy guzzling beers and more like aristocratic, robed Greeks with gold frill sitting in a garden, you know, sipping tea or whatever they would sip. I guess wine. Duh. They're over there sipping wine. The last group are the Stoics. They were in the Stoa and Zeno was, Zeno was their founder. They were more popular level philosophy available to the public at large because an Epicurean, you'd have to be pretty rich to be able to take life that easy. A Stoic is more for your common man. As such, it's no surprise that Paul quotes and interacts with them more often in his letters than he does the other groups. Stoicism was close, close to a sort of pantheistic mentality, much more so than Epicureanism, where there's divinity and then the physical world, and it's like there's a giant divide between them. The pantheism of the Stoics is much more fluid. The Stoics believed that there was a Logos that permeated the universe. It was a controlling, activating, creative energy that worked on the passive Ulei. And so everything was divine in a sense. Almost like, almost like a millennial with a set of crystals and vague niceties posted on their Instagram saying something like, quote, I am one with the universe and the universe is one with me. That, that kind of thing sounds more like a Stoic more than any of the other groups. This Logos that permeated the universe could be thought of like a spirit, and even be Zeus himself. You could maybe even think of it as being like the Force from Star Wars. The central imperative for the Stoic in, in like the point of human life was to be at peace with this inner Logos that was permeating the universe. This even sounds kind of like Taoism a little bit. Bring yourself into unity with nature, Clinthus, or the universe, Chrysippus, these are different Stoic thinkers, is the point of living. Strive for Aristotle's virtues, believed the Stoic, because health and wealth are not givens. By becoming one with nature, you could become impervious to the, quote, flat tires and, quote, dying goldfish of everyday life. You don't want to be rocked easily by bad times. A Stoic believed that senses could be deceived. 
Like you, uh, you couldn't necessarily trust what you saw. But their epistemology put a lot of weight in logic, which was seen as beyond the failings of your sight. Cicero, putting words into the mouth of Plato, said, quote, As our previous conclusions are undoubtedly true and well-established, and as these are the logical inferences from them, the truth of these inferences also cannot be called into question. End quote. Sifting through these inferences was called dialectic. So, coming from you know one logical step to the next. Um, it being that the world was so intertwined between the logos and humanity, divinity, and the physical, you know, this is the opposite of Epicureanism. There, there can't possibly be something wrong with the world. So if you're in a rough spot, you either need to rise above it or commit suicide. Um, one last thing was that the Stoics believed that history worked in great cycles. They believed that the fiery logos, or penuma, it's a spirit, is slowly expanding and will eventually eat up the whole co cosmos in its fiery conflagration. At these times, the deity, this Logos, will absorb everything into himself and recreate everything. It happens in cycles. Time was seen as a cycle. The fire would burn everything up and then allow a time of stillness. But then the cycle would start over again and everything would be cre recreated and proceed in the exact same way that it had before. Some Stoics also believed in a great deluge, where it was like that except it would happen with water. This is interesting. Right notes, quote, Seneca held that the deluge would happen when the planets converged in Capricorn and the conflagration would occur when they met in Cancer, end quote. These were differing views, but you see a, this common thread with the Stoics of destruction and recreation. And um, I was reading A Brief History of Time. It was written in the 80s, and it talked about how at that time he seemed to... Stephen Hawking seemed to believe that the universe would crash back in and then explode back out and then it crashed back in. In his appendix, he says, no, actually, that's not what's going to happen. Um, the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate, so it looks like it's just going to expand forever and then have a cold death. What's interesting, though, is when you had it uh, expanding outward and crashing back in, it's very stoic sounding. So that's kind of like a, a modern image of what a Stoic would have thought was happening with the cosmos. Now, something very important about this is that it made Greeks have a different perception of time and final hope than a Christian-influenced society would take for granted, where people just think that the, the arc of history is, is large, but it, it tends towards justice. Or There's like an MLK quote that I'm butchering. But basically, the idea is that we're heading closer and closer to this something good. That's going to happen, like a the the millennium, in in Christian philosophy. Or Marx thought we were moving toward this perfect society. So whoever's listening to this podcast, um, food for thought, you can sit and try and ask yourself this question: What is the ultimate destination for humankind? Are we heading toward a new creation? Are we heading toward destruction? Is it an endless cycle? This is the sort of thing you need to argue with your friends about um, while y'all smoke pipes and drink uh, coffee and do whatever else you do. All right. That was fun for me. I hope you guys had fun learning about that. I'll see you guys next time.